0: Hello, and welcome to a much-delayed episode of Assassinations Podcast. This one was supposed to come out in November of last year, but due to a number of work and personal commitments, I've just not had time to record and edit it until now. We'll be looking at the Gunpowder Plot. This was the attempt, on the 5th of November, 1605, to assassinate King James and the English Parliament a conspiracy that seemingly pitted a secret cabal of Roman Catholics against the Protestant king and political establishment of England. I say seemingly because, as with so many assassinations and assassination attempts, there might be more to this story than meets the eye. Before we get started, I just want to give you a little cultural detail of the significance of the 5th of November. To listeners in Britain, this date is very well known, not so much for the historical events of the 17th century as for the popular tradition of setting off fireworks and having large bonfires. The fireworks are a reference to the barrels of gunpowder that were to be ignited to kill the king, and we have the bonfires because, in times now thankfully past, an effigy of the Pope was burned. There is a traditional children's rhyme for this festival, which goes thusly. Remember, remember the 5th of November, gunpowder, treason, and plot. I see no reason why gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Guy Fawkes, Guy Fawkes, 'twas t'was his intent to blow up the King and the Parliament. Three score barrels of powder below, poor old England to overthrow. By God's providence he was catched, with a dark lantern and burning match. Holler, boys, holler, let the bells ring. Holler, boys, holler, God save the King. The 5th of November also used to be celebrated in the British colonies of North America, where it was known as Pope's Day, because, thereto, an effigy of the Pope was burned. After the American Revolution, the practice died out. There was still plenty of anti-Catholicism in America, but rather less rejoicing that the life of a British monarch had been spared. Now, let us travel back in time to reconstruct in narrative historical form the events of the Gunpowder Plot. I won't be going into detail about all aspects of the plot or all of those involved, Rather, with a touch of artistic license, we are going to go on a jaunt through a remarkable moment in English history. We will recount the commonly accepted narrative, but later we'll consider a possible alternative for what might really have happened. And we will end by asking a question. What would England and the world look like had the conspirators succeeded? Welcome to Assassinations Podcast, where we delve into some of history's most notorious political killings and explore the mysteries and conspiracies that surround them. Time and again, assassins have wielded the blade, the poison vial, the bullet, and the bomb to shape the course of history. I'm your host, Neil Cooper, and in this podcast, I'm going to investigate the lives and deaths of some of history's most colourful characters. The year is 1604. It is the month of December, a few days before Christmas, and it is bitterly cold. Snow has not yet fallen in London this winter, but icicles hang from the eaves of the houses, and the cobblestone streets are treacherously slippy. A soldier from the northern English county of Yorkshire, Guy Fawkes slips from the street into a dark, narrow alleyway, then climbs the back stairs of a tavern. He knocks, a secret, coded knock, on the door of a small meeting room above the pub. A bolt is drawn, and the door inches open with a creak. A glimmering eye peers out. Enter, stranger. I am no stranger, sir, but a friend. A friend of whom, sir? Of the king? Nay, a friend of our future queen. The door is pulled open, and Guy Fawkes slips into the dimly lit room. Inside, seated around a table, is a small group of men. Their names are Robert Catesby, Oswald Tesimond, Thomas Percy, and, standing at the door, Thomas Wintour. Guy Fawkes takes his place at the table. A single candle at its centre flickers, casting grotesque shadows upon the earnest faces of the men and the walls of the little room. They have all gathered for one purpose – to commit themselves, whatever the cost, to murder the King of England, their Sovereign Lord, and the entire English Parliament to boot. They will do this by setting off an almighty explosion on the next occasion that the King opens a session of Parliament in the Palace of Westminster, on the banks of the River Thames in London. These plotters all Catholics forced to practice their religion in secret for fear of reprisal, are determined to reverse the Protestant Reformation in England, begun 70 years earlier when King Henry VIII broke away from the authority of the Pope in order to have an annulment of his first marriage and wed his mistress, Anne Boleyn. Many a tumultuous year has passed since Henry broke away from the authority of Rome, Protestantism really developed as the state religion in England during the short reign of Henry's son. Then the tide turned under the reign of Henry's Catholic daughter Mary, before England went Protestant again under his other daughter, Queen Elizabeth. Religious reformers of various stripes have come and gone, shaping and reshaping church governance, theology, and worship. The Church of England has emerged as a Protestant, Episcopal institution, an arm of the state with the monarch at its head. A new king sits on the throne. As Elizabeth died childless in 1603, Parliament, after years of private negotiations, invited King James VI of Scotland to reign in England as well. James arrived in London with great pomp, and was welcomed with joy by the common people who were doubtless pleased that the matter of succession had been settled without recourse to bloody strife. He brought with him his wife, Anne, his eldest, Henry, a second son, Charles, and a daughter, Elizabeth. James's mother, Mary, Queen of Scots, who was a Catholic, had for years been favoured for the English crown by Catholic sympathisers who opposed the rule of the Protestant Queen Elizabeth. Mary was considered enough of a threat that Elizabeth had her imprisoned in an English castle for 18 years before executing her in 1587. Unlike his mother... James is a Protestant, and not much has really changed for most Catholics in the realm, such as the men gathered above the tavern this evening who face deep discrimination. In a country where the monarch is also the head of the established church, with the official title Defender of the Faith, not adhering to that faith marks you out as being potentially disloyal. The question that English Catholics face is this. Does your loyalty lie with your monarch? Or with the Pope? Well, the plotters ask, what good does loyalty to the crown do when all you get in return is prejudice and oppression? Therefore, the plotters believe that they owe no loyalty to him. In fact, they feel they are now justified in assassinating him and the Queen and the two royal princes, as well as hundreds of others, in order to return England to the fold of the Roman Catholic Church. The plotters intend to spare the life of the Princess Elizabeth. She is only nine years old, and they hope that, with her parents and brothers dead, she can be raised in the Catholic faith and placed on the throne as a puppet monarch until she reaches adulthood. The leader of the plot is Robert Catesby, He is from a prominent English family of recusant Catholics, that is to say, those who refused to submit to the Protestant faith of their monarch. Catesby had been involved in the so-called Essex Rebellion of 1601. This was an unsuccessful rebellion by the Earl of Essex against Queen Elizabeth, largely driven by the thwarted personal ambitions of Essex, who had been a favourite of the Queen before falling from grace. Though the Earl of Essex was beheaded for his treasonous efforts, Catesby was granted quite remarkable clemency. He was imprisoned for a while and given a hefty fine, but his life was spared. Under James, Catesby has been fully rehabilitated, to the point that he is now a regular hunting companion of the King. And yet, Behind a facade of loyalty, he has for years maintained covert correspondence with the royal court of his most Catholic majesty, King Philip III of Spain, and other Catholics opposed to the Protestant monarchy of England. Spain and England have been, until very recently when a peace deal was struck, at war for many years. The conspirators look to Catholic Spain for support, and perhaps even an invading force to back their scheme. Catesby looks around the table. Gentlemen, we are gathered here to commit ourselves, might and main, to be fighters, and if called upon, martyrs, of the one true faith. Let God's will be done. The other men murmur in agreement. The good book says, If thine eye offends thee, pluck it out. Here in England we have a new king, a foreigner from Scotland, a Protestant who oppresses the adherents of the one true church. He and his accursed Protestant ministers must be annihilated, wiped from the earth, to face judgment before God Almighty. By hook or by crook, by fire or the sword, we shall rid England of these heretics. All nod in sincere agreement. I pledge myself to the death of the Protestant tyrant and the return of England to the fold of the Holy Mother Church, declares Thomas Percy. Tall, broad, dashingly handsome, and of noble bearing, Percy is a scion of one of the most powerful and wealthy families in England. His uncle is the Earl of Northumberland, and, though they are officially Protestants, it is widely believed that they have strong Catholic sympathies. Thomas Wintour, who admitted Guy Fawkes to the room, is a cousin of Robert Catesby. He seconds the statement. It is Wintour who brought Fawkes into the plot a few months ago. The men met as soldiers fighting for the Spanish in the Netherlands both had hoped that the King of Spain would invade England and restore Catholicism. In 1603, they had travelled in secret to Madrid to appeal to the Spanish to launch an invasion. Instead, King Philip of Spain agreed to a peace deal with King James. So, it now falls to the Catholic faithful here in England to strike the deadly blow against the Protestant monarch. Then, Maybe the Spanish will change their minds and intervene to bring new Catholic order out of the chaos. Gunpowder, Fox says, is not so easy to come by in such quantities. Where there's a will, there's a way, Guy, says Wintour. With God, all things are possible. God, yes, Catesby adds. And gold... And luck, Thomas Percy chimes in. Planning, I prefer to luck, Tom. Catesby smiles indulgently at the haughty younger man. One does not blow up the king and parliament, that den of thieves that has done us so much harm, by luck, though I do pray that fortune be on our side. Catesby lays out his plan. A few months hence, before the next session of Parliament convenes, the conspirators shall load 36 barrels of gunpowder under the hall where the King, his wife and sons, his Lords, courtiers, clerics, members of his Parliament will be gathered. With James and the rest dead, the country will be ripe for the taking if they can seize Princess Elizabeth and encourage an uprising of Catholics outside London. That will indeed take some luck, Catesby's best hope for success is that the country will be in such disarray after the explosion in Parliament that the plotters will be able to take advantage of the chaos in order to act. They must hope and pray for success. The other man gathered above the tavern this night is Oswald Tezemund. He is an old friend of Guy Fawkes, they knew each other as schoolboys. For many years, Tesimund studied in Rome. A theologian and Jesuit priest, he is the ideological force within this group. As a man of the cloth, he cannot shed blood, even for a cause he profoundly believes in. However, he hears the confessions of the other conspirators and grants them absolution for the murderous plot in which they are engaged. And now, says Tesimund, to our most important duty. He lifts to the table a box of highly polished mahogany. He opens the box to reveal, protected by soft purple velvet, a small silver chalice, a glass vial of red liquid, and in a little golden tin, small wafers of unleavened bread. Tesimond repeats the words in Latin that have been spoken for hundreds of years, He, an ordained priest of the Catholic Church, is, according to their deeply held beliefs, a link in an unbroken apostolic line that goes back to the disciples of Jesus Christ. As such, he is able to transform the wine from the vial and the wafers in the tin into the living body and blood of their Saviour. This he does, and distributes the host to the other men there gathered he himself finishes the remaining transubstantiated creatures of bread and wine, and reverently secures the accoutrements of the Mass back into the box. This act of faith is strictly, strictly illegal in England. The Mass has been condemned by the Protestants as a form of Popish superstition. The saying of the Catholic Eucharistic prayer and the distribution of the host amongst people of shared faith is even in private, a crime, a blasphemy, and an affront to the king. It is an act of faith, but it is an act of rebellion, and it is a sign of the unity of belief and of purpose of the men who share the sacrament. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, in intones, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. Amen. Amen. They all repeat. It is the spring of 1605. Despite the appeals of Catholics who insist on their loyalty, King James has not relented in his intolerance of Catholicism. The mass remains forbidden, and Jesuit priests are being hunted down and expelled from the country. With that said, James is canny enough to let sleeping dogs lie. If his Catholic subjects are otherwise loyal to him, it is unlikely that they will be persecuted for practising these Roman rites, if they do so quietly and very much in private. And when it comes to geopolitical scheming, James has shown himself very willing to take a flexible approach on matters of religion. He entered into peace talks with Catholic Spain, and is even considering betrothing his children to Catholic princes and princesses in Europe, to the dismay of the more hard-line Protestants of England. James has had a challenging first three years on the English throne. He has faced plots and even a small-scale rebellion. His efforts to unite his two realms of Scotland and England into a single kingdom has been rejected by the respective parliaments of both countries, and the Protestant Church in Scotland is chafing at the king's efforts to impose English forms of worship and governance upon them. But, overall, James's reign has been quite successful so far. His government is stable, despite ongoing tensions between hardcore Protestants and Catholic sympathisers. He ended a costly war in Ireland, and he scored a huge diplomatic victory by negotiating an end to England's long conflict with Spain. And that has freed up significant financial resources for James to spend on other projects. All is not well on his domestic front, however. James and his wife, Queen Anne, have grown further and further apart since they left Scotland. The king generally prefers the company of young and handsome men on long hunting trips around the English countryside. Meanwhile, the queen maintains her own household and follows her own interests in London. When they do meet, they quarrel. She complains about his excessive drinking, while he disapproves of some of her choices of ladies-in-waiting. It is said that the Queen is a little too friendly with people with Catholic sympathies. Indeed, a few people at court are beginning to whisper that maybe she might share those sympathies herself. As this rumour swirls, our plotters gather again. Guy Fox visits the house of Thomas Wintour in London to meet three other men who share their vision of returning England to the Catholic fold. They are brothers Jack and Kit Wright, and another man, John Grant. A final covert appeal by the plot leader, Robert Catesby, to the Spanish for support has been rejected. Philip of Spain will not jeopardise his peace deal with England. Even the Pope... Clement VII has discreetly told Spanish authorities that it would be unwise to try to overthrow the Protestant order of England by force, for fear that if such a plot failed, then James would more severely harass the remaining Catholics of the country. The conspirators have agreed to press on with their mission regardless of such concerns. They believe that they must kill the king and wipe out his parliament. Then, they shall let fate play out how it may. With God's grace, they hope, the death of James and the slaughter of the elite will deal such a terrible blow that Protestantism will not be able to recover. Catesby has managed to secure enough money to buy all the gunpowder needed to commit their bloody deed. He has gradually built up a large stockpile of it in a house he has rented in Lambeth, just outside London. This is quite remarkable, as the government strictly controls the sale of gunpowder, so Catesby must have sourced it illicitly. But this is a massive quantity of the stuff. Three dozen barrels, enough for a small army to wage battle. How has he been able to do it? Regardless, all this gunpowder must now be transferred to a location within the Palace of Westminster, This palace is no longer used as a royal residence, rather it is a maze of buildings constructed over centuries that now serve a variety of purposes. There are houses, shops, taverns, chapels, halls used as law courts, and the chambers used by the House of Commons and the House of Lords. King James was due to open a session of Parliament in February, but an outbreak of plague in London postponed this gathering. Instead, the date of November 5th has been set as the next time the king, his lords, and the elected representatives of the common people will gather together in Westminster. And this is when the plotters will strike. The new additions to the plot, brothers Jack and Kit Wright, are very wealthy, and eager to use their fortune to help pay the rent on a property located within the Westminster Palace complex, though the monthly rent payment is to be made in person by Thomas Percy, who, as a relative of the Earl of Northumberland, is in a position of trust. The gunpowder amassed in Catesby's rented house in Lambeth must now be slowly and carefully moved to the basement of this property in Westminster. There is a tunnel from that property to a basement directly under the House of Lords quite how Catesby discovered this passageway is also a bit of a mystery. All the other plotters are amazed at his ability to mastermind the scheme. It really is quite remarkable, given that Catesby must surely be watched by the King's spies. He is, after all, a known recusant Catholic and a former rebel, who now has close contact with the King during hunting trips. It is in the chamber of the House of Lords where the King, with the Queen and Princes, Henry and Charles, will sit down with the peers of the realm and, standing, members of the House of Commons. If successful, the explosion will be enormous, blowing up a good portion of the sprawling Palace of Westminster and guaranteeing the deaths of most, if not all, of those gathered within. Anarchy will then reign across the country, Probably there will be much bloodshed, but the ends justify the means, the plotters believe, and they have been given special dispensation to do what must be done for the greater good of the one true faith. Key to the success of their plot is the seizure of the young Princess Elizabeth, who is expected to be staying in a house in the English Midlands at the time, while the rest of her family is in London. John Grant has been charged with this element of the scheme, He is to raise a band of Catholics in that region, kidnap the princess, take her to a secret location, and then use her as a pawn in their game. The nine-year-old will be offered the throne on condition that she is raised as a Catholic, and while she is in her minority, a council of men loyal, or at least sympathetic to the Catholic cause, shall rule for her. And who might those great men be? Well, perhaps Catesby thinks he as the organiser of the plot will be one of them. And could it be that the Earl of Northumberland, the alleged Catholic sympathiser and relative of conspirator Thomas Percy, will take a place of power should the plot succeed? Perhaps. Nobody seems quite sure where Northumberland's loyalties truly lie. But What is known is that the Earl has secured for Thomas Percy a position as one of King James' personal bodyguards. Thus, one of the plotters has been placed in a very sensitive and very useful position, just when the life of the king is in gravest danger. This is not the first time that a Scottish king's life has been threatened by a gunpowder plot. In 1567, James's own father, Henry Darnley, was almost killed when a store of gunpowder under a house outside Edinburgh where he was lodging exploded. Darnley was married to Mary Queen of Scots and held the title of King Consort. He was very nearly killed in the blast. Crawling away from the fiery scene, Darnley was apparently smothered or strangled by an unknown assailant. It was widely speculated that Mary lay behind the assassination of her own husband. The pair were estranged, with Darnley plotting to assume power as king in his own right. Arguably, James only sits upon the English throne because his father was murdered. The death of Darnley further undermined Mary's already shaky rule— she was soon deposed by the Scottish nobility who made her young son James King and ensured that he was raised in the Protestant faith. How ironic, then, that James now faces a fate similar to that suffered by his father. Hunting in Cambridgeshire, James is in high spirits, but he isn't looking forward to his imminent return to London for the opening of Parliament. The king has little time or patience for this deliberative chamber. James laid out his vision for how kings should rule in a short book published in Scotland in 1598 called The True Law of Free Monarchies. He is convinced of an absolutist theory of monarchy where kings have the divinely ordained right and obligation to impose laws by royal prerogative alone without seeking permission from anyone else. This is, James believes, the natural order of things, as God appointed some men to be commoners, some lords, and others kings. A monarch has been set upon his throne by divine providence, in order to do God's will on earth. So, not only is it an encumbrance for a king to have to seek any permissions from Parliament, it is an offence to God's very laws. James had this work republished in London in 1603, just to stress the point to his new English subjects. Nor is James particularly looking forward to seeing his wife. The royal couple not yet completely estranged, will enter Parliament together side by side, with them their sons Henry, Prince of Wales, and Charles, Duke of York. Perhaps not a happy family, but a family nonetheless, one that has endured tragedy and triumph, and that now faces annihilation and grief. In a series of secret meetings in taverns across London in October of 1605, the plotters make their final preparations. It is decided that Guy Fawkes will take the riskiest part of all. He must light the fuse to ignite the gunpowder stored under the House of Lords. He must then make a hurried escape to the River Thames, which runs by the Palace of Westminster. Fox is then to leave for the continent, to seek support from European Catholic powers. Meanwhile, John Grant, who has been quietly seeking support from Catholics in the Midlands, together with Robert Catesby and Thomas Percy, are to capture Princess Elizabeth and rally support for their cause. Several of the plotters have expressed worries about the safety of English Catholics who will be present in Parliament on the day of the planned explosion, A number of lords keep the Catholic faith in private, or are at least sympathetic to it. Catesby has tried to assuage these concerns, suggesting that certain Catholics could be deliberately delayed in their travel arrangements to London, or injured in some small way to cause them not to attend. But Catesby has ordered the other conspirators to not, under any circumstances, warn anyone of what they have planned. Despite this order, on the 26th of October, a nobleman named William Parker, Baron Monteagle, receives an anonymous letter. It reads, My Lord, out of the love I bear to some of your friends, I have a care for your preservation. Therefore, I would advise you to come up with some excuse to shift your attendance at this Parliament. For God and man hath concurred to punish the wickedness of this time. There shall be a terrible blow against this Parliament. Think not lightly of this letter, but retire yourself to the safety of your country house. Burn this letter, and I hope God will give you his holy protection. Lord Monteagle had been a prominent supporter of Catholic causes during the reign of Queen Elizabeth and he took part in the Essex Rebellion. But he had softened his stance since James took the throne and he was now in favour at the royal court. Monteagle was also, as it happens, the brother-in-law of a man named Thomas Tresham. Tresham was a very late addition to the gunpowder plot. From a wealthy Catholic family, he was brought into the fold by Catesby in order to provide funds and the use of the Tresham ancestral home, Rushton Hall. Catesby considers this would be a good place to take the kidnapped Princess Elizabeth. Concerned by the letter, but unsure of its meaning, Ward Mount Eagle takes it to the king's chief councillor, Robert Cecil, the Earl of Salisbury. Lord Mount Eagle's servant happens to be acquainted with two of the plotters, the brothers Kit and Jack Wright. The servant tells them about the letter, the contents of which have been passed on to Robert Cecil. The Wright brothers immediately send a message to Catesby, warning that their plot has been exposed. Catesby, who is hunting with the king, suspects that Tresham must have penned the letter, After making an excuse, Catesby and Percy return to London to meet with Thomas Wintour and then confront Tresham. Tresham pleads his innocence in this matter and pledges his complete loyalty to the Catholic cause. But he urges Catesby to abandon the plot, which is surely now too risky. Catesby tells Thomas Percy to ask his uncle if there are any serious concerns about a plot against the king. The Earl answers that he hasn't heard a thing. Percy reports this to Catesby and states they should go ahead with their plan. So, Catesby rides back north to the Midlands to participate in the abduction of Elizabeth. Meanwhile, Guy Fawkes receives a pocket watch from Percy. This must be used to calculate how long the fuse to ignite the gunpowder must be. On November 1st, Robert Cecil, the Earl of Salisbury, takes the letter to King James, who has just returned from Cambridgeshire for the opening of Parliament. The King is deeply concerned. He points specifically to one word in the letter, blow, stating that he believes this refers to a plot to use gunpowder to blow him up, the fate that befell his father. James says that they must keep this intelligence secret and appear to proceed with the opening of Parliament as planned. He wants the plotters to believe that they are in the clear, so as to lure them into a trap. The King then orders his Lord Chamberlain, Thomas Howard, to discreetly undertake a thorough search of Westminster Palace, both above and below, especially under the House of Lords, where James and his family are due to sit three days hence. On the 4th of November, Fox goes through the tunnel into the basement under the House of Lords. He must measure the length of fuse required to allow him to make his getaway. While there, he is discovered by a search party. Fox pretends that he is a servant of Thomas Percy and that he is in the basement to fetch firewood. There is indeed a large pile of firewood stored there. Unbeknownst to the guards, Fox has used it to hide the barrels of gunpowder. The searchers depart without looking any further, much to the relief of Guy Fox. But when the men report back to the Lord Chamberlain, he expresses suspicion. Isn't it rather odd to store firewood under the House of Lords? Why would Thomas Percy send a servant down there? So, the Chamberlain orders his men to return to the basement to carry out a proper search of the entire space. Back down there, the guards find Fox again. This time, he is wearing an expensive cloak and riding boots, certainly not the attire of a humble servant carrying firewood. They seize him and carry out a thorough search, discovering the barrels stored behind the woodpile. Fox is brought before the king in the wee small hours of the 5th of November. He gives a false name, John Johnson but otherwise is bold in proclaiming to the king that it had been his intention to blow him and his parliament to smithereens. Fox states that he has acted alone, and that his intention was to avenge all wrongs done to the Catholics of England. Despite this bold confession of the intent to kill him, James is actually rather impressed with Fox, who retains his composure throughout the interrogation. However, he does not believe that this John Johnson is telling the truth about acting alone, so he sends the prisoner off to the Tower of London to have the truth extracted from him by means of torture. Meanwhile, Catesby and other plotters continue with their scheme to stir up a rebellion and seize the princess. But word of events in London quickly reaches the Midlands. By the evening of November 6th, the conspirators can find nobody, not even their own relatives, who will offer them shelter, let alone active support. It is already clear to everyone that the plot has been well and truly foiled, that the lives of anyone even remotely associated with it are now at the gravest risk. By the 7th of November, after two days of unimaginable torment, Guy Fox is a broken man. He confesses to being part of a conspiracy, and he names names. Known and suspected Catholic priests across England are quickly arrested, servants of the conspirators are brought in for interrogation, and a nationwide manhunt begins. The authorities in the Midlands set out to capture the plotters, several of whom are quickly arrested. Robert Catesby, Thomas Percy, John Grant and some of the other men hole up in a manor house in the county of Shropshire. On November 8th, it is surrounded by 200 men led by the county sheriff. A shootout ensues. Seemingly, Catesby and Percy are killed by a single shot, while the others are arrested and taken to the Tower of London to be interrogated. Thomas Wintour is the second person to confess after Guy Fawkes. He too names some of his co-conspirators. Other confessions soon follow. These are gathered and edited into a book, together with an account praising the astute reasoning and swift action of the King, which is published in December. The following month, the surviving conspirators are brought to trial for high treason before a panel of Lords Commissioner all senior nobles trusted by the king. The case against them is framed as a dastardly Catholic and specifically Jesuit plot. Confessions from the prisoners are read aloud. Some of the men on trial beg for mercy, others simply accept their fate. All are swiftly convicted and sentenced to a horrible death, to be hung, drawn and quartered. The condemned men know what this means. They will be stripped naked and drawn backwards through the streets of London by a horse. In a public square, surrounded by a baying crowd, the men will be hanged by the neck, but cut down before they are dead. After that, their genitals will be cut off and burned before their eyes. Then their bellies slit open and their bowels pulled out. Finally, they will be decapitated and dismembered, with the body parts nailed to the gates of London and other towns across England as evidence of the fate that befalls traitors. Suspected of involvement in the plot due to his patronage of Thomas Percy, the Earl of Northumberland is also arrested and taken to the Tower. He is treated very differently from the other men, though. Allowed to live in a comfortable apartment, the earl is permitted to keep servants and to receive guests. Though he does not subject the earl to any ill-treatment other than incarceration, the king forever remains suspicious of him. He is kept in the tower for over fifteen years, albeit with a library, garden, tennis court and bowling alley at his disposal there. In response to all this, King James and the English Parliament pass laws to further discriminate against Catholics, though James continues to show a degree of toleration for those Catholics who show total loyalty to him and promise to in no way threaten the Protestant system. The exposure of the plot also has the effect of dashing any hopes that the Spanish might some day invade England to reinstate Catholicism. The utter failure of Catesby et al. to elicit support proves to the Spanish that there is insufficient support for a Catholic uprising in England. And this brings me to a point I alluded to at the start of this episode. Was the gunpowder plot actually what we would now call a false flag? A conspiracy manufactured by the state itself in order to create the appearance of crisis which could then be exploited to achieve a preordained outcome. Even back in early 17th century England there were, to use our parlance, conspiracy theorists who said as much. Some people at the time wondered if the king's powerful chief minister, Lord Salisbury, had been behind the plot which he engineered in order to flush out disloyal Catholics in England and test whether or not Spain would attempt to support an uprising. Might Robert Catesby and Thomas Percy, two men with powerful connections, have actually been agents of the state? Is that why Catesby was able to organise and seemingly keep secret a fairly large conspiracy over the course of a year? a conspiracy that required correspondence with Spain, the purchase of huge quantities of gunpowder, and an attempt to raise a Catholic rebel force in the Midlands? Or Percy, who was placed into the personal bodyguard of the king, despite being associated with Catholic intrigues? Wasn't it rather odd that of all the conspirators in the Midlands, only these two men were not arrested? They were supposedly killed by a single lucky shot. How likely is that? Did they really die? Or were they spirited out of the country, their work, on behalf of Lord Salisbury, done? Pure speculation, of course, but intriguing to think about. So, here's a question. What would have happened if the Gunpowder Plot had succeeded? What if the King and Parliament had been obliterated? If this terrible act had encouraged Catholics to rise up and reclaim their rights? If the conspirators had been able to seize Princess Elizabeth and turn her into a Catholic queen? If the Spanish had used this to invade, or at least to support a new Catholic order in England? What difference might that have made to the world? Quite possibly a huge one. Naturally, the future of England, and Scotland and Ireland for that matter, would have shifted. Alliances within Europe would also have altered. And the impact would have been felt in the New World. The reign of King James was the time when migration from Britain and Ireland to North America really began in earnest. Colonies expanded there. English would become the dominant language, and Protestantism the dominant religion. But if Spain, or France for that matter, had gained great advantage from the death of James and his Protestant lords, perhaps the balance of power and culture in North America would have shifted. Would the continent today be less Anglophone and more Catholic? What impacts would that have had on history and culture not just in America, but globally? The most widely published translation of the Bible for almost four centuries was the King James Version, developed on the orders of the King and published in London in 1611. Would such a remarkable document, the language of which has had a profound impact on English literature, have been published had James died? We can only guess as to what difference a successful gunpowder plot might have made to our world. But I think, It would have been a huge one. Oh, and by the way, over the centuries and to this very day, the basement beneath the Houses of Parliament is searched the night before the monarch comes for the official state opening of Parliament. Just in case someone is inspired by Guy Fawkes. Thanks for listening to this belated episode of the show. It was researched and written by me, Neil Cooper. Lindsay Morse produces and edits the show. Our theme music is by Graham Ronald. Graham has a musical project called Remember Remember, so named because November 5th is his birthday. So, happy, very, very belated birthday, Graham. Details of how to get in touch or support our work through Patreon are in the show notes that accompany this episode. I have an episode in mind for later this year. I don't want to share the details of the timing about it right yet. don't want to over-promise and under-deliver, but I will get back to you all soon when I know more, so look out for that. And thank you for your patience waiting for this episode. Until next time! Goodbye.